Well, some of you don't know um, because Chris wouldn't say say it, but that was a song that Chris wrote uh, a few years back. And so my question is, how many of you guys would like Chris to write more songs? Okay. So I say that, Chris, because you would have loved this. I was walking down from my uh, little apartment place that I stayed at this at this conference that we were doing, and uh, I met these two cute little Chinese girls coming up the stairs. They were kind of skipping up the stairs, holding hands, and they were singing God Made Everything, the song you wrote uh, for our kids' camp last year. Uh, Chris wrote this really fun song uh, that he taught our kids, and uh, so they taught that song to the kids in, in, in China this last week, and they were skipping around singing it, a song that he had written. So I thought that was really, really cool. So anyway, man, you're, you're, you're the next Chris Tomlin, man. That's all I know. <laughs> anyway, it's neat how you just tr- strive to be faithful in the little things, right? And you never know how God's going to use, you know, what you do in one place to make an impact somewhere else. And so um, I think that's the testimony of our church. Um, if you remember about 10 years ago now, it's hard to believe it, it was that long ago, that um, uh, I decided to do a, a, a D-min, a doctorate, in, uh, get a doctorate in expository preaching, and as, a, as my project, my dissertation, uh, we decided to tackle a project together, Right? Um, we did, uh, let's say, let's, let's, let's consider the subject of expository listening. And uh, what is, uh, we know what the preacher's responsibility is. That usually gets, gets the main focus when it comes to preaching, right, is what, what God calls the preacher to do. But well, what about, what does God call the listener to do? And uh, the Bible says a lot more about listening than it does about preaching, which tells me he cares just as much about what's going on out there in the pews or the chairs as, as he does about what's going on behind the pulpit, Right. So we have this partnership, and, uh, and so uh, unbeknownst to us, the Lord was going to take that dissertation and basically was, came out of 12 messages. You guys had to endure 12 sermons on listening, <laughs> how to listen. What a weird sermon series, a sermon on how to listen to sermons, right? Um, but you guys endured that, or at least those of you that were here uh, 10 years ago, and, and uh, God took that and turned it into a little book called Expository Listening, um, a, a practical guide to hearing and doing uh, God's word, and uh, we've been able to uh, pass that around and uh, have people here in the states enjoy it. Well, uh, again, Raymond said, "Hey, I want to translate that into Chinese," and so um, here it is—the first Chinese copy of expository listening. So, how cool is that, right? Um, and just so you know, I can't read it. Um, it's all Chinese to me, but like, wow. And I, I didn't know every one of these little, I thought this was like these characters were letters, but each one of those characters is a word. And I'm just like, man, this is like worse than Hebrew. Like when I was taking Hebrew in, in seminary, I was like, whoa. I mean, it was just like one little dash or hash mark or, you know, it's like how do they keep all that straight? But anyway, uh, just thought this would be an encouragement to you to see how the Lord is just continuing to use our book, right, to make an impact uh, around the world. And so what a, what a cool opportunity that is. And so... Um, this last week I've had expository listening on the brain, okay? That's all I've been talking about uh, with these dear folks. They would sit there um, uh, literally for an hour and a half, eight times, eight sessions we had together. I preached eight sermons, hour and a half long. I thought, these people, you don't need me to be teaching you this. You're, you're, you're here sitting for an hour and a half listening uh, to these messages, and I'm saying that t- today because they took the clock away. So just so you know, it could be an hour and a half. So just get ready. And no, I'm just kidding. They did prop it up back there. So I do have some, a gauge now to sort of use if I feel like it. But um, anyway, um, as I was, you know, coming back yesterday on the plane and just thinking and praying about what I could share with you today, um, of course, my mind kept going back to this subject, which I think is just such a profound subject that is just ignored in the church today, this, this whole concept of of listening, and so um, <clears throat> I didn't want to, for lack of a better term, bore you with another sermon on listening that you've maybe heard countless times already. But the the passage that I think is related to to um, to to this whole subject is Hebrews chapter four. 
Hebrews chapter 4. This is a, one of my favorite passages um, in all the Word of God about the Word of God. And uh, I love what the Bible says about the Bible. And so Hebrews chapter 4, verses 12 and 13, again, very familiar to you. As you're turning there, by the way, I just uh, forgot to mention, I got this, this sweet young lady bounced into my office this morning when I was just getting ready, and she dropped this little note off on my desk. Dear Pastor Ken, thank you for sharing to us the beautiful word of God, your little listener, <laughs> Alex. And so I just thought that was cute, your little listener. I thought hopefully they're learning as little youngsters, right, that ultimately it's about listening, right, to, to the word of God as it's preached. And so thank you, Alex. I know at least one person is listening this morning, so we'll see, see who else is listening. But again, familiar passage, let me read it for us and pray. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, for the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Father, thank you for your word and what your word says about itself here, that it's living, it's active, it's sharper than any two-edged sword. It's able to pierce our very heart of hearts. And so, Lord, as we consider your word and, and how it reflects your omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent character, that enables you to see and know everything about us. I pray that your spirit would open up our minds to understand what he meant when he wrote these verses through the writer of Hebrews and, and then, Lord, also how they apply to us today, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, throughout the scriptures, we know that the Bible is likened to a number of things, like food or a lamp or fire, or a hammer, or seed, or a mirror. And here we see the Word of God likened to a sword, a sword. Now, the book of Hebrews is an interesting book addressed to Jews who were wavering in their faith in Jesus Christ. They'd been exposed to the gospel. Uh, some had even embraced the gospel. Uh, but they were being tempted to fall back to their old religious system of Judaism, they were still being influenced by their fellow Jews who had not yet followed Christ. And so the writer of Hebrews exhorted and, and encouraged them to not allow their hearts to become hardened toward God and his word. And in order to warn them against the danger of falling away from the one true God, he quoted here and he exposited, explained Psalm 95. Notice the context here uh, of of chapter 4, verse 12, you have to go back to chapter 3, verse 7. And he's quoting Psalm 95, one of my favorite psalms. He says, therefore, just as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as when ye provoked me, as in the day of trial in the wilderness. Obviously, he's speaking of the nation of Israel here. Where your fathers tried me by testing me and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was angry with this generation and said they will always go astray in their heart. And they did not know my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. And that rest was the promised land that the Israelites failed to enter because they disregarded and disobeyed God's word. And so God had them wander in the wilderness for 40 years until they all died off. And it was a result of their hard hearts that they had to wander all those years and never experience the rest that God intended for them. I think this is one of the most frightening concepts in the whole Bible to have a hard heart towards his word. And what that means is that you hear the truth of God's word, but you refuse to listen to it. You refuse to obey it. 
In other words, God convicts you of something in your life, but you ignore it. You don't do anything about it. And eventually your heart becomes insensitive to God's voice. It's like a callus on your skin, on your foot or your hand that you just, you could poke it with a needle and you can't feel it anymore. And so the writer of Hebrews warned these Jewish Christians to not let their hearts become hard to the voice of the living God. Notice in chapter 3, verse 12, he goes on, take care, brethren. So let me apply Psalm 95 to you now, this new generation. He says, take care, brethren, that there not be any one of you in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. But encourage one another day after day, as long as it is still called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of of sin. Verse 18, and to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? In other words, disobedience is why the nation of Israel didn't experience their rest. Chapter 4, verse 1, therefore let us fear if, while a promise remains of us entering his rest, any of you may seem to have come short of it. In other words, there's a promise that God's made to us, the church, that we would enter into rest. Verse 6, therefore, since it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly had good news preached to them failed to enter because of disobedience. And then verse 11, this is chapter 4, verse 11, therefore, let us be diligent to enter that rest so that no one will fall through following the same example of disobedience. Again, God's rest here initially referred to Israel settling in the land of Canaan where they would rest from wandering, they would rest from warring against their enemies. But here, as Paul makes application to the people he was writing to, I should say Paul, that was kind of given away who I think wrote this, but the writer of Hebrews here, we'll keep it generic, um, when he wanted to apply this to uh, these people in the New Testament and to us, he's referring to, I think, salvation. Our, our inheritance in Christ as Christians, that, that ultimately heaven is the goal, right? That's where we'll end up, where we'll rest from wandering on the earth and warring against sin. And so whether or not Israel experienced her rest depended on her obedience to God, and even so, experiencing our rest depends on our obedience to God. When we disobey God, we forfeit divine blessing that God intended us for new enjoy. But when we obey, we fully enjoy God's favor and blessing in our lives. Whenever uh, I have an opportunity, somebody, and they were doing this, is, hey, would you, would you sign this book? And I say, sure, and I'll sign my name. And I'll always put a Luke eleven twenty eight. 28. You know, you know what Luke eleven twenty eight says? It says, he who hears my word and obeys will be blessed. It's not just enough to hear the word of God, right? You need to obey the word of God. You need to observe it. You need to act it out. You need to live it out. You need to put it into practice. And when you hear the word and live it out, you're blessed. That's what the Bible promises. And whenever we don't obey God, it's not a matter of how we're going to be judged. It's really how we're not going to be blessed. I appreciate John Piper just making this kind of... a. The, the mantra of his ministry over the years that we should fight temptation not with the threats of punishment. Oh, you know, don't do that because if you do, then this is going to happen. Bad things are going to happen. No, fight temptation with the promises of God, the promises of blessing and what you're going to miss out on if you give in to temptation. And so the writer of Hebrews here is, is, is desiring to motivate his hearers to not be like their ancestors who disregarded and disobeyed God's word and fa they failed to experience God's blessing. And so he offered them two reasons why they must never blow off God's word because essentially that's what we're doing when we sin. We're, we're blowing off God's word. And so there's two reasons in verses 12 and 13 that should compel all of us to hear and to heed God's word, to listen to what it says and do what it says. In other words, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. I think all of us are guilty at times of hardening our hearts towards the word of God, right? We, we blow off, I mean, anytime we sin, 
we're basically saying, I, I, Lord, I know what your word says, but I'm going to do this anyway. We're, we're blowing off his word. And we allow the deceitfulness of sin to harden our hearts toward God's word. And when we do that, we miss God's blessing. And so what I want us to see here in verses 12 and 13 this morning are, are two compelling reasons why we must hear and heed God's word so that we can experience God's richest blessing in our lives. And it's, it really comes down to what it is. What is this thing here that we all hold on our laps? What is this and whose is it? It's the word, but it's God's word. It's the living word and it's the, the living God who's given it to us. This is, you could call it the sword of the Lord. And so let's look at these two verses and these two compelling reasons. First of all, verse 12, and we'll just call this the living word. The living word. Notice he says in verse 12, for the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. That connects with what we were just talking about in chapter 3 and chapter 4 leading up to verse 12. Verse 11, therefore let us be diligent to enter into that rest so that no one will fall through following the same example of disobedience. In other words, in order for us not to follow that bad example, we need to recognize, first of all, that the Word of God, the written Word, the Holy Scripture, does three things. There's three things about God's Word that are mentioned in this passage. Number one, it's dynamic. We need to understand something about the Bible. Number one, it's dynamic. It's living, which again describes the dynamic quality of the Word of God. It's not just a collection of outdated, irrelevant writings from a bunch of old dead guys. And yes, while the Bible was written in times and cultures that are far removed from us, these ancient words are just as much alive today as the moment they were inspired by the Holy Spirit. Acts chapter 7, verse 38. Stephen said, on Mount Sinai, Moses received living oracles to pass on to you. In other words, they weren't just dead traditions. Dead principles. No, they're living oracles. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 23, it says, For you have been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable. That is through the living and enduring word of God. For the grass withers and the flower falls off, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the word which was preached to you. I'm sure you've noticed by now. You've walked into the old uh, worship center plenty of times, and you've noticed that we have that passage up there, the grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And that's the word that's being preached here at this church. And so uh, what does this mean, that the word is dynamic, it's, it's living? Well, number one, the, the word of God gives us life, regeneration, that faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of Christ. 1 Corinthians one twenty one, Paul or, or excuse me, uh, well, yeah, Paul said that, that, that Christ chose the preaching of the word, the foolishness of preaching to save people. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15, Paul reminded Timothy that it was through the sacred writings that he had learned from his mother and grandmother th that he was saved. Here in the same neighborhood, James chapter 1, verse 18, in the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth. And so the word of God gives us life. It regenerates our soul. This is the, what the spirit of God uses to save us, to regenerate us, to bring dead people to life. Secondly, the word of God sustains our life. This is the sanctification process. John 17, 17, Jesus said, in his high priestly prayer, he said, Father, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. And then Paul in Ephesians chapter 5, you'll remember in that section about husbands and wives, he mentions the sanctification process. He says um, to husbands, they are to love their wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. 
that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. And so God's word makes us alive and it keeps us alive. It is our very life. In fact, that's what Moses told the people of Israel just before he died and passed the mantle to Joshua. In Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 47, he says, talking about the law, for it is not an idle word for you. Indeed, it is your life. And so it's living, it's also active. Energes in the Greek, which is, of course, the word we get, the English word energy. It's the word of God is energetic, it's effective, it's powerful, it's, it's productive, it produces results. It makes things happen in our lives. It transforms our lives, it changes our lives, it convicts us and confronts us and corrects us and comforts us and conforms us to the image of Christ. Isaiah 55 talks about that God's word does not return void. Whenever it goes forth, it always accomplishes the purpose for which it goes forth. And in 1 Thessalonians 2.13, Paul talked about how the word accomplishes its work in those who believe. And then, of course, 2 Timothy 3.16, when Paul was reminding Timothy of the, the ultimate resource that he had in ministry was the scriptures that were inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. I mean, this is like a one-stop shop that the man of God might be adequate, equipped for every good work. And so the word is always at work. It's busy doing stuff all the time. I was so blessed this morning to be able to uh, get to know some new folks that have been coming to our church, and we started our life at Lakeside class, and it was kind of a, a unique experience for me. I mean, I've taught this class for 20 years, but uh, I had never been away for three months or so before the class started, and so there was actually people in there that I had never met before, and that's just not normally what happens. And normally, I know these people already to some degree, but this was the first time I was having people sitting. I'd never really met before. I just he had heard of them, and so we were talking about what the Lord uh, how the Lord had brought them to this church and, and why are they wanting to join the church and, and to hear their stories that how God has been working in all of their lives through his word. And I'm sure we could go around this morning and say, hey, tell me some of the things that God's work is doing or God's word is doing in your life. And what is God's word doing in your life? And how is God's word making impact in your life? What are some of the changes and transformations you're seeing in your life because of your exposure to the word of God? We could all share at any given time. It's, it's working all the time. Never takes a break. Even when the pastor maybe takes a break for three months of the summer, guess what? The word continues his work, never stops. Continues to do his work. Not just in the pastor's heart, but in the people's heart. I love what Martin Luther said along these, along these lines of the word being living and active. He said this, quote, the Bible is alive. It speaks to me. It has feet. It runs after me. It has hands. It lays hold of me. Do you ever feel that? You can't get away from the word of God. It just like chases you down and, and tackles you and, and forces you to deal with things. And that's what the next phrase is, is saying, I think. For the word of God is living and active, so it's dynamic. But secondly, it's dissecting. It's dissecting. It's sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow. That phrase, two-edged sword, is the Greek word makaira, and that was not the, the broad Roman sword. It was the short little dagger, which was the sharpest weapon in a soldier's arsenal. You kind of pull that thing out at the last minute and use it um, against the enemy. Ephesians 6, 17 is the same word in the, in the description of the armor of God. He calls the, the, the Bible the sword of who? The sword of the spirit, the makaira of the spirit. And so he says it's this two-edged sword piercing. In other words, it cuts through our hearts like a hot knife through butter. 
You remember what the people's response in Acts chapter 2, verse 37 to Peter's sermon after Christ was crucified and ascended, and then he preached his first sermon to those who had crucified Christ. And as he was preaching, Luke records that they were pierced to the heart as he preached the word to them. And notice it says that, that it's sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow. So it's able to divide. The word of God is able to divide the indivisible. Can you divide the soul and the spirit? I mean, the soul and the spirit are as closely interwoven in the spiritual part of us as the, the joints and the marrow are interwoven in our physical bodies. Now, I don't think the, the author of Hebrews was trying to weigh in on the debate between dichotomy and trichotomy, which you're like, what is that? I didn't even know there was a ba- debate. I've never even heard of those terms before. Well, dichotomy and trichotomy is simply the, the debate between is man made up of two parts or three parts? Is, is he body, soul, and spirit, trichotomy, or is he body and spirit or body and soul, which is a dichotomy? Again, I don't think that was his point to make a theological argument here. I think this is simply a a poetic statement of the power of God's word to penetrate to the very depths of human personality. And and by the way, this doesn't sound comfortable. Does this sound comfortable to you? That the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of the soul and spirit of both the joints and marrows? Sometimes this is painful. Amy Carmichael, who um, some of you are familiar with, was a missionary to to, uh, India. She said this, if you have never been hurt by the word of God, it is probable that you have never heard God speak. If you've never been hurt by the word of God, it's probably that you've never heard God speak. Sometimes the Bible hurts. You're reading along or you're hearing a message and it's like, oh, that hurt. That's that's an issue. You got me there. And so God's word is dynamic. It's always at work. And what is it doing? It's dissecting. But then thirdly, it's discerning. It's discerning. Notice he says, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. That word judge is kritikos in the Greek where we get our word critic. The Bible is our best critic or maybe our worst critic. It's able to discern what's actually going on in our hearts or minds. He talks about judging the thoughts and intentions. Our Our hearts and our minds are this tangled web of sinful thoughts and desires and feelings and emotions and motives. And the reason why God flooded the earth and killed his creation, save for Noah and his family, in Genesis 6, 5, he says, because every intent of the thoughts of man's heart was only evil continually. Jeremiah 79, the heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? And Jeremiah says, or the Lord said, I, the Lord, search the heart, I test the mind. And that's why the psalmist prayed in Psalm 139, verse 23, 23, search me, O God, and know my what? My heart. In other words, I, I, I don't know my own heart, but I know you do. And so would you search it for me and show me areas that are not pleasing to you to see if there's any hurtful way in me? See, none of us are able to know what's actually going on in another person's heart. I mean, we can't even know what's going on in our own heart sometimes. And so we have a hard time discerning what our true desires, what our true motives, what is our true intentions. And ultimately, only God understands what's going on in our hearts, and he helps us see the things in our lives the way they really are, and and sort them out. And he does that through his word. He uses his word to help us discern. And so God's word powerfully 
penetrates the deepest, darkest recesses of our hearts and our minds. It reveals the secrets of our hearts, exposes what's, what's hiding in every nook and cranny of our lives. It leaves no stone unturned, no cavern unexplored. There's no part of our being that doesn't come under the scrutiny of God's word. In other words, simply stated, God's word has the power to impact every area of our lives. Amen? And so we have the living word. It's the first compelling reason why we should hear it and heed it. It's, a, it's alive. It's, it's dynamic. It's dissecting. It's discerning. We need to listen up, pay attention, do what it says. But there's a second reason that should compel us to, to hear and heed the word of God. is not just because of what it is and what it can do, but because of whose it is. It's the word of God. And the reason why it's living is because it's the, the word of the living God, the, the one true God. Verse 13, notice, he says, and there is no creature hidden from his sight. Again, notice the connection. He's talking about how the word of God is alive, it's active, it's sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division and soul of spirit, both joints and marrow, able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Well, why is that? Because there's no creature hidden from his sight. But all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. So that and there at the beginning of verse 13 connects this verse, verse 13, with the one before it. In other words, these two verses go together. They're, 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 they're linked. They're, they're a package deal. In other words, God and his word are inseparably linked. You can't have one without the other. You, you can't separate a book from its author. The word is the way it is because of whose it is. It's God's word. And A.W. Pink comments on the word and. You think, well, that seems to be the most insignificant word in this whole passage. But Pink says, no, that's an important word, that word and. He says this, this first word denotes that a reason is being given for the power and efficacy of the word. A reason which is drawn from the nature of him whose word it is, namely God, who being himself the searcher and discerner of all things is pleased to exercise that power in and by the ministry and application of his word. So God's character is inherent in his word. Psalm 138.2 for you have exalted above all things your name and your word. And so God's omnipotence, his omniscience, his omnipresence flow through his word. So what does that mean? That God is all-powerful, God is all-knowing, and God is what? Everywhere. And that's what makes the Bible so dynamic. It gives, and gives it the ability to dissect our hearts with such precision and so accurately discern every aspect of our lives because it's the word of the all-powerful, all-knowing, everywhere-present God. And ever, whenever we're exposed to the word of God, we are, in essence, being exposed to God himself. Listen, beloved, when we look into the word. It's as if we're looking into the very face of God. This is his word. Whenever we open up our Bibles, we come face to face with God. We need to remember that tomorrow morning when we maybe are not feeling, feeling it like we need to have our quiet time. I'm not sure I have a time. No, you, you have a chance to look into the face of God tomorrow when you open up his word. How cool is that? 1 Corinthians 14, verse 24, Paul was instructing the church about their, their services, their church services, their gather, worshiping gatherings, and he's, he was commending to them prophecy. 
the preaching of God's word. And he says, but if all prophesy and an unbeliever or, or an ungifted man enters, he is convicted by all. He's saying, you know, you can speak in tongues, but that's not really going to convict people the way prophesying. If everybody's prophesying, everybody's preaching the word of God, he's going to be convicted by all. He is called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed. And so he will fall on his face and worship God, declaring that God is certainly among you. That's what we want to happen when an unbeliever comes and visits our church, that, that they're convicted. They're called to account. The secrets of their heart are disclosed, and they fall on their face and worship God, saying, God is surely in this place. The only way they'll ever experience that is if, if, if this word is in this place. If the word is being prophesied, if the word is being preached, that's the only way that'll happen. And unfortunately, because there's so many churches where the word of God isn't being preached, people come and go, and they're never convicted about anything. They can come, it's easy, it's comfortable. And they can go to a church for weeks, months, even years, and never change. Because the word is not being preached. Notice what he says here. And this is interesting, this language that he uses here, but all things, he says, there's no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. That word open literally means naked, or naked, as you say here in the South, right? Naked. All things are naked and laid bare to the eyes of him. I mean, when you come before the Lord, you find yourself standing before him with your sin completely uncovered and exposed. You're completely exposed, completely vulnerable. There's, there's no way to cover up your sin. There's no place to hide. It's like Adam and Eve in the garden. They, they tried to hide in the bushes, and God's like, hey, where are you guys? They made little outfits for themselves, right? They, they couldn't hide. Why? Because there's no creature hidden from his sight. All things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. That word laid open there, or laid bare, is, is in the original trachelos, which sounds like what? Trachea, right? Your throat. And it's really an unusual word. It's only used here in the New Testament. But it's been associated with a couple different things. Um, in ancient times, wrestlers had a certain hold that involved seizing the opponent's neck to, to render them powerless. It would be like, if you're into UFC, I guess, or MMA, whatever they call it now, um, you know, you get the chokehold, right? And, and, and you got to tap out. And, and sometimes God's word puts a chokehold on us. And we're like, okay, God, I give, okay? I'm tapping out here. I, I, you got me. The word also was associated with the sacrificial system when the priest would pull the head of an animal back and, 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 and slit its throat with a knife. A similar thing was done to a criminal who was brought before a judge for sentencing and the guard would pull his head back and put a knife to his throat so he couldn't turn away and he was forced to look at the judge the whole time while he was being sentenced. And so the idea here is that God seizes us by his word and he lays that, that, that double-edged sword of his word against our throats and forces, him, forces us to look at him as our eternal judge. And the power of, God, power of God's word just renders us completely helpless. We're forced to stand face to face with God and there's nothing we can do to avert our eyes from his discerning gaze. You know you've had kids and they're in trouble and what do they do? Right? You can't do that. We're forced to look into God's gaze. Why? Because he sees everything we do. Nothing escapes his, no his notice. Nothing can be hid from God. He knows what we do, when we do it, where we do it, with who we do it, why we do it. And someday we, were, we are all going to stand before him and give an account of everything we did or didn't do. That's what it says, with whom we have to do. 
Or the NIV, if you have a new international verse, it says, to, to whom we must give an account. Romans 14, verse 10. But you, why do you judge your brother? Or you again, why do you regard your brother with contempt? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, every tongue shall give praise to God. So then each one of us will give an account of himself to God. And when we stand there before God, and I believe this is a reference to the Bema seat, God's word will be this solemn, solemn instrument of judgment. Just like a human judge uses um, a standard of laws to make his rulings. The government has laid down some rules and some guidelines, and so he makes his judgments based on those, those laws. And so God will make his rulings based on the standards and the laws he's written down. These are God's standards. These are his laws. And so his word will be the standard by which he judges us. That's why Jesus said in John 12, verse 47, if anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on that last day. And so all of us will have to submit our lives ultimately to the scrutiny of God's word. We will be examined and judged based on how closely our lives lined up with God's word. At the end of his wandering, looking for meaning in life, this is what Solomon concluded in Ecclesiastes chapter 12. He said, the conclusion will always been heard is this, fear God and keep his commandments because this applies to every person. Why? For God will bring every act to judgment, everything which is hidden, whether it's good or evil. And so again, whenever his word is set before us, when God is speaking to us through his word, whether it's, whether it's through our own reading or in the preaching of God's word, we should tremble knowing that nothing is hid from his eyes. I mean, there may be some things in your life that you're like, man, I'm so glad these people don't know that what I'm really like or what I'm really doing. Well, there is somebody here who knows what you're really like and what you're really doing. And by the way, he's not just here at church. He's at your house too, and he's at your work, and he's at Walmart. He's at wherever you go. He knows but, Isaiah 66, two, listen to this. But to this one I will look, to him who is humble and contrite of spirit and who trembles at my word. Listen, not every look of God is desired, right? Like, okay, I hope he's not looking right now. But this should be the one look that we long for the most. This is the look of blessing. To this one I will look, who is humble and contrite of spirit and who trembles at my word. In other words, he reveres the word, he respects the word, he listens to the word, he obeys the word. And so if we were to experience this look, this look of blessing, whenever we hear God's voice speaking to us through his word, we must not harden our hearts. We must not blow it off, if you will. We need, we need to listen attentively and wholeheartedly obey it. Listen to what John Calvin said about the importance of listening to God's word, and, and this is a comment that he made on this particular passage in Hebrews. John Calvin said this, if anyone thinks that the air echoes with an empty sound when the word of God is sent forth, he is making a great mistake. In other words, if you're sitting here this morning going, yeah, whatever, ho-hum, when's this thing going to be over? I got things to do. You're making a great mistake. This was something alive. And full of hidden power, which leaves nothing in man untouched. The sum of all this is that as soon as God opened his sacred mouth, all our senses ought to be opened to receive his word. Because it is not his will to scatter his words in vain, either to fade away or to fall neglected to the ground, but effectively to challenge the consciences of men so as to bring them under his rule. So in other words, when we come and sit down and the word of God is opened, you better sit on the edge of your seat and listen up because God's talking to you. It's not me. 
It's God talking to you through his word. Calvin goes on, he says, he has therefore endued his word with this power to search out every part of the soul, to scrutinize the thoughts, to decide between the affections, and indeed to show itself as the judge. You know, in light of the imagery here of this sharp two-edged sword, I think every time we read the word or hear the word preached, it's like we're going under the knife. It's an expression we use, right, when, when you have a, a surgery scheduled, yeah, I'm going under the knife. And what happens to us every Sunday, as it were, we come here to church, it's like we're, we're, coming under, we're going under the knife. Every time you open up your, the, the Bible, your, your copy of Scripture, to, to, you're going under the knife. And the divine surgeon uses the divine scalpel, his word, to perform surgery on our souls and cut out the cancer of sin from our lives. That's what he's doing. And normally, surgery is a scary thing. It's like, surgery? Okay. No, no, no thanks, right? Especially spiritual surgery. That's worse sometimes than physical surgery. But for those of you that have been under the knife, you have experienced a surgery or two in your lifetime, you know it's comforting when you have confidence in the surgeon who's doing the operation. What's even more comforting is when you actually know the surgeon. He's like a personal friend of yours. And you know he loves you and he cares about you and he's going to take super good care of you. Even though he's got to hurt you, he's going to hurt you to help you. And so when it comes to undergoing the piercing ministry of the word in our lives, guess who's the surgeon? Our Savior, our friend, Jesus Christ. He's the surgeon on duty. He performs every surgery on all of us. Every time there's one to be done, it's Jesus Christ. How do we know that? Because God's word is also referred to in the Bible as the word of Christ. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of Christ. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. Christ is synonymous with the word. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, talking about Jesus. So Christ is the one who wields the sword of Scripture. Revelation chapter 2, verse 12, to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, the one who has the sharp Two-edged sword says this. This is Jesus talking. I'm the one who has the sharp two-edged sword. Therefore repent or else I'm coming to you quickly and I will make war against them with the sword of my mouth. Again, that's a warning in that context, but the point I'm making is, hey, do you know the surgeon? Do you have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ? Is he your Lord and Savior? then while surgery can be scary, sometimes interacting with the word can be painful, you know who's, who's working on you. It's, it's your friend, it's your savior, Jesus Christ. And there's no more skilled surgeon than him. And there's nobody who loves you and cares about you more than him. And one day we will come face to face with our surgeon with our Savior, Jesus Christ, the incarnate word in our faith will become sight. And so let me just read for you as we close the words of Jeffrey Thomas in a little booklet he wrote on, on reading the Bible. And, and this, I just love this. Just listen to this, what he says about having your quiet time, essentially. I don't know about you, I don't always feel all warm and fuzzy and bells and whistles and fireworks going off when I have my quiet time. Sometimes I'm just kind of having my quiet time. It's like, okay, I, I read my Bible and I prayed and nothing earth-shattering, life-changing seemed to happen. So he says this, do not expect always to get an emotional charge or feeling of quiet peace when you read the Bible. By the grace of God, you may expect that to be a frequent experience 
but often you will get no emotional response at all. This is advice. Let, that's, in other words, that's okay. Let the word break over your heart and mind again and again as the years go by, and imperceptibly there will come great changes in your attitude and outlook and conduct. You will probably be the last to recognize these. Often you will feel very, very small because increasingly the God of the Bible will become to you so wonderfully great. So go on reading it until you can read no longer and then you will not need the Bible anymore because when your eyes close for the last time in death and never again read the word of God in scripture, you will open them to the word of God in the flesh. That same Jesus of the Bible whom you've known for so long, standing before you to take you ever into his eternal home. I trust that will be your experience, that will be my experience, that will be our experience as we continue to let the word of God, the living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword word, fall against us week after week, Sunday after Sunday, that we will have these imperceptible changes taking place and someday we will stand before him and uh, we essentially won't need this anymore, right? Because we'll be in his presence. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you so much for your word. I pray you'd make it more precious to us even sometimes, even though sometimes it hurts us and causes us great pain as it exposes sin in our life. But Lord, we're thankful that, that Jesus Christ offers himself to us as that, not just that surgeon, but first and foremost, our savior. And I pray that if anyone here this morning doesn't know Jesus as their savior, that today would be the day of their salvation. And that you would use even this message about the power of your word, Lord, to accomplish your saving work in their soul. And so, Lord, I pray that we would always put a high premium on your word, reading it on a daily basis, listening to it preached as often as possible. Lord, that we might um, become more and more conformed to the image of the one who we long to see someday, and that's Jesus Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen.